If you're wondering why you should listen to me, I'm your everyday 24-year-old guy going through everyday struggles. And maybe, just maybe, you'll feel better knowing you're not alone. My name is Brandon Dennis, a nursing student living in New York. Interested in learning all that I can, I make friends with all kinds of people. Everything from music to business and fitness, I'm open to hear everything and anything. Welcome to the Unwritten Podcast. All right, all right. Welcome, everybody, to the Unwritten Podcast. My name is Brandon Dennis, and I am your host. Uh, We're just going to do a little bit of of more housekeeping just to keep you guys updated on what's happening with the Unwritten Podcast, what's happening with me, and then we'll get on to the show. Uh, Just want to say that we are now, uh, what, yes, seven episodes deep. We are almost two months strong with the Unwritten Podcast, so just want to give a great shout-out to the fans and everybody that listens to the audience. Uh, Just really glad that you guys tune in week to week to listen to this podcast, to grab whatever that you can from it. Um, It's been a really great experience for me, and I'm glad and very thankful for you guys. Um, So you'll have an episode this Monday, and you'll also have an episode coming up next Monday. But... Uh, what's going to be happening is that because I'm in the Army National Guard, if you don't already, if you don't know that already, well, now you do. I'm part of the Army National Guard, and part of my obligation of being in the Army is that during the summer I have to go away for and some kind of annual training. Uh, for me, it's going to be about three weeks that I'm going to be away. So this episode and then next episode will be the last you hear from me for a duration of probably about three to four weeks. So unfortunately. Uh, after next week, uh, you won't have an, ep- uh, uh, an episode of the Unwritten Podcast for about four weeks, and then I'll be coming back in August. I might have some a surprise in August, but there's no real. Uh, uh, I don't want to put any promises on that, but I'm gonna try and get uh, get something uh, rolling for you guys, so that when we come back in August, um, I have some really great stuff for uh, to talk about with you guys. So uh, that's pretty much all I really wanted to talk about. Now let's re- uh, get right into the show. We are going to be talking about this hot topic that's been spiking up in the news. It's been spiking up in social media. Uh, it is defunding the police. It's one of those things that I feel a lot of us, you may shout and scream or a lot of us may look at and just say like, that's dumb, that's stupid. Why would you want to defund the police? Um, I'm going to talk about what defunding the police actually means, what it's not and what defunding the police could actually look like for uh, for our country. So basically, everything everything with this has been sparking up ever since the death of George Floyd. We have been going weeks on weeks with uh, all sorts of protests for police reform and defunding the police. So what exactly is defunding the police? It's exactly what it sounds like. It's not too complicated. It's exactly what it sounds like. It uh, It is reallocating... Um, or redistributing funds away from the police department to other government agencies. And that's just it. It's literally taking money from the police department's budget and then taking that money instead of giving to the police department, giving it to other, uh, you know, um, uh, giving it to other government agencies to include, you know, mental health, uh, uh, addiction centers, uh, trauma centers, uh, are you know uh, recreational facilities, all sorts of different things in order for um, you know greater things to happen in our communities. So I, one thing to also not get confused with with defunding the police is that defunding the police does not mean abolish the police. These are two different things. So what does abolish the police mean? It, it doesn't. It, it's not 
supposed to be taken so literal. And I think a lot of people take it in a very literal sense where we want absolutely no police force. We want no law enforcement. We're searching for anarchy. And that's not what abolishing the police actually means. What it does mean is that we want to abolish and dismantle the police force as we know it. And we want to build it from the ground up. It's not the complete and utter removal of the police, but it's removing what the police is now, breaking it down and restarting from the ground up because the way that the police force is being run now and the way that they act in our communities with all the police shootings and everything, it's something that's going to be very hard to reform. So instead of reforming it, why don't we break it down and start from square one? So that's what abolish the police means. So if you hear that or uh, you see that, don't think that people, I mean, maybe there are people out there that want absolutely no sort of law enforcement, but the overwhelming majority of people that, that will talk about defunding the police and abolishing the police are not talking for, they're not looking for or searching for anarchy. So now we know what defunding the police is, reallocating funds from the police department to government agencies. We know what abolish the police means. It's not the complete and utter removal of the police department, but it is dismantling the police as we know it and building it up to be something greater and better than what it is now. And some people look at this and think of it as this weird, irrational thing. It's not an irrational thought because right now we're in 2020, but I will tell you that there have been police departments that have been abolished in the very literal sense. Um, back in 2012, this happened in New Jersey, in Camden, New Jersey. So uh, basically what happened in Camden back in 2012, uh, Camden was a poverty-stricken in a, uh, a city that was heavily reliant upon state aid. Uh, and so in 2011, 2012, and even 2013, uh, crime spikes were, saw were seen and as a response, Governor Chris Christie, um, he basically cut all that state aid um, and basically uh, wanted to, excuse me, so he, he ends up uh, forcing Camden to decrease its budget by 20% in a single year. And the police officers at that time were fired, services were cut, and Camden even lost its last library. So Governor uh, Chris Christie basically, he cut the budget for the police. He pretty much got rid of the police and he cut a bunch of social services as well to get down that budget. And although I do commend um, conservative and Republican figures for being so fiscally um, conscious, but it, it, there comes a point where you're cutting back to save money in whatever aspect it was. But there's also a point where cutting so much, uh, uh, so much of that budget, cutting so much money, could actually be detrimental to uh, your situation, which we'll see in Camden as I proceed. So uh, that was that comes from Washington Post, written by St uh, Stephen Daly. So we see that Chris Christie's idea was to dissolve the police union and replace it with a regional county force that was cheaper and uh, more focus on broken windows policing, and it was significantly more white in a city where 95% of the population were minorities. All right, so now our next question is, what is broken windows policing? So, uh, according to NPR, uh, the broken windows theory of policing suggested that uh, cleaning up the visible signs of disorder, like graffiti, loitering, panhandling, and prostitution would prevent more serious crimes as well. So it's this idea that if we can make areas visibly look like there's no crime, 
it will it will stop by stopping lower crimes it will be preventing larger crimes such as a homicide uh burglary assault uh rape it will, if we stop the, the the smaller stuff the bigger stuff won't happen that's exact that's pretty much what the broken windows theory is talking about um and this new county regional force that Chris Christie put in Camden, New Jersey, they fully embraced this. They fully embraced the idea of this broken windows uh, policing. So this strategy led to a disproportionate arrest of black and Latinos. Um, for example, summonses for disorderly conduct, conduct rose 43%. Summonses for not maintaining light or reflectors on vehicles went up 421%. Summonses for tinted uh, car windows went up 381%. Summonses for riding a bicycle without a bell or light went up from 3 to 339. And this all happened in the first year. This all happened in one year. I want to say this was 2013. They, they abolished their police force in 2012, and in 2013 was when this regional force came to be. So this idea of broken windows uh, policing was really, really focused on, I mean, granted, like I said before, this, this city was 95% minority, but I'm saying that more specifically broken windows policing focuses on our minority, our, our minority groups and focuses on black communities, basically busting them for things that are small. Like I said, riding a bicycle without a bell, uh, window tints, uh, you know, simple things. And so now this all happens in the first year. So what happens? What happens, right? Um, excessive force complaints rise with the increase of broken windows policing. And uh, in 2014, excessive force complaints almost double that of 2011. And also in 2014, Camden led the state of New Jersey with the most excessive force complaints. So you have multiple cities in New Jersey, you have Camden, you have Trenton, you have Jersey City, you have all these different cities, and Camden in relation to those other cities is very, very small. You have Newark, uh, so Camden had more excessive force complaints than Newark and Jersey City combined. And just to give you a little bit of perspective on that, the Camden population, and these numbers I, I ended up rounding, I'm not going to give ex exact numbers, but yeah, just rounding these numbers off, Camden population was roughly about 70,000 with their regional police force being about 400 cops. And the combined population of Jersey City and Newark was roughly about 530,000 with about 1,700 cops. So with Jersey City and Newark combined, they have almost eight times the amount of people, but Camden had more excessive force complaints than both of these cities combined. Make it make sense to me. Okay, so we have this rise of excessive force complaints. We have this rise of summonses. Uh, so what happens next? Uh, violent crimes and nonviolent crimes decrease from 2012 to 2018. 23% uh, and 48% respectively. And now you may be a little bit confused thinking, okay, things were getting really, really bad, but then they got better, Brandon, right? Okay, yes, crime crime rates did go down, but we also need to put context into this. So this is where I'm going to insert the reasons why for why crime decreased during this time period because it's not because of the new police force that they put in. Similar drops were seen in Newark, 
Uh, drops were also seen in Jersey City, in Trenton, in Patterson, uh, basically almost all the cities in, in Jersey. There were a couple that didn't see these drops in a uh, crime rate. Um, but these cities uh, that are different from Camden, they see these drop rates, but they don't have the broken windows policing that this Camden Regional County Force is doing. All right. So if we're seeing, if we're both seeing similar drops in crime rate, but one city is doing one type of uh, police strategy and the other cities are not doing that police strategy, that police strategy is not the reason for the drop in crime rates. In 2014 and 2015, local uh, NAACP uh, began to highlight all the issues that's happening with this police force. So it's the increase of excessive force. It's the increase of white officers. And when I say the increase of white officers, the police force prior to this one was roughly about two-thirds black, one-third white. And now it, that, that sort of swaps when this new police force comes in. It's now roughly two-thirds white and one-third black. Um, there's a dramatic turnover in the police. So before I told you that there was about 400 police, uh, police officers in that, uh, in that police force. So here, um, within that first year, more than 100 officers had resigned with at least 50 we don't know the exact number, but with at least 50 of them taking jobs elsewhere in 2013. So it's almost like a, like a bad like a retail job or something like that. You go, you, you work, you realize that what's happening really, really sucks. You hate your manager, you hate your job, you leave and you go elsewhere. That's the exact same thing that's happening here. It's a cheap replacement for what was the police force. It's not working out the, it's not working out the right way. And people are understanding that it's not great for them, and they're up, they're getting up and out, and they're finding better jobs elsewhere. Uh, so, with that in mind, with 2014, 2015 in mind, that's sort of the middle point of this 2012 to 2018 time period I'm talking about. This ultimately leads to the rise and emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement and a push for less violent policing. So. What I keep on stressing 2014 because 2014 was a very important year. Why it's important, I want you to think for a second. What happened in 2014? I'll wait. In 2014, that was the shooting of Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson, Missouri. He is the one that made the chant, hands up, don't shoot, famous. So... In 2014, Black Lives Matter is not just blowing up in New Jersey. It's still, it's blowing up all over the United States. It's blowing up everywhere. And so everyone's having their, their small sort of, you know, their, you know, their regional battles with their, their, with their police forces. And we see it here happening in Camden. So with them, with that NAACP bringing up all the issues, with that transforming into Black Lives Matter, with the shooting of Michael Brown Jr. in Ferguson, Missouri, that pressure led to the rewriting of their use of force policies. So in 2015, we see that uh, the, that police force ends up getting a de-escalation mentoring program. So they understand how they, how they should be interacting with their community, that you need to go, you need to de-escalate situations before you just act. Uh, and then in 2019, recently, uh, they now require officers to intercede if other officers are using force inappropriately. 
that comes to this like this whole like great old point of like accountability. If you see your partner doing something wrong, it should be your job and responsibility to check your partner and say, "Hey, ease your ease your knee off his neck. You don't really need to do all that." Or, "Hey, he says he can't breathe. Just just ease up for a second. That sounds very logical, but the fact that it needs to be written law, written policy, I can't explain it to you. I can't explain it to you. So with the you know introduction of that de-escalation mentoring program, with that uh, requirement of interceding for excessive force, uh, excessive force complaints dropped 95% since 2014. Okay, so now what's the point of me talking about this? Why, why, why am I talking about Camden? What can we take away from Camden? Because I talked about defunding the police and I just told a whole story about uh, a situation where the police force was abolished and it really did not turn out well for New Jersey. So uh, this article that I found from uh, brookings.edu uh, they have this nice quote in here, and it says that Camden is not a story of how disbanding and creating a new force magically fixes policing. It is a story at how community persistence can lead to meaningful change and how force reduction policies can, in fact, reduce force. So Camden went about it the wrong way. They went about it the wrong way. They were trying to, they thought that if they could just you know, get rid of what they thought was their issue, replace it with a cheaper model that things would just go away and everything would be grand and dandy. Not the case. It was basically the problem getting much worse in the community standing up saying, hey, we're not going to we're not going to stand for all this. You know, and it's almost crazy when you think about it. It's you know, you look at all the protests that are happening right now and so many people will tell you. Uh, you know, these people are criminals, they're just rioters and looters, they don't care for real change, this and that, whatever, whatever. But it's, it's you know, also if you notice like all the petitions that are being signed, some, some of these police officers are being held accountable now, some charges are being put in place, not nearly as much as what we should be seeing. But it's almost as if, if you actually do fight and stand up for yourself, things happen. It's almost as if that you, if you care about your community and you try to stand up for, you know, a, a, a cause much larger than yourself, that you know things do shift in progressive ways where the community is much safer and better off. Crazy concept, crazy concept. So, like I said before, moving on. Uh, so, in a reallocation of police funds in combination with the pressure from Black Lives Matter. Uh, to rewrite the use of force of po uh, use of force policies is the key to abolishing uh, was the key to abolishing the police, um, not an actual abolition, uh, but the but the removal of the old and then uh, replacing it with that cheap replacement, uh, slashing at state funds and also social services. So now I'm going to talk about some uh, points that would be in favor for defunding the police. So in that same article by brookings.edu, um, says that data shows that nine out of 10 calls for service are for non-violent uh, non uh, encounters. And they also go on to say that these encounters 
doesn't say that these encounters will not become violent, but they nine times out of ten they start nonviolently. So when we hear that and we look at police and we look at what they do, their skill set doesn't match the social interaction they have in the community because their training is mostly in the use of force and tactics for worst case scenarios to reduce potential threats. So if you're being trained on how to use force, you're being trained on, hey, this is what you do when things head south. This is what you do when things really, really get bad. If that's your training, but 90% of your interactions don't start off that way, and a lot of the violent encounters that were nonviolent, if you can, you know, most of those things are avoidable. Where, where, where are the Lego pieces connecting? Where, where are the puzzle pieces connecting? Because for me, it's not. Because you're being taught one thing, even though most of your interactions don't involve that one thing. And I'm not saying that police officers shouldn't be taught those things because when things do go south, when things do go bad, yes, they need to have they need to have those skills in their in their back pocket because that can save their lives and i i do understand that um but we just need to understand that, that that all those all those interactions every single interaction that they have with the community from all their calls to service it all starts with a conversation so now i, I want to talk about this shifting funds to social services uh to mental health to drug addiction and homelessness is a better way of spending taxpayer dollars because uh, this would help decriminalize. It would help decriminalize and de-stigmatize uh, people with mental health uh, conditions and addiction problems. So I'm not going to read off every single stat that I wrote down on this piece of paper, but I wrote it down on paper so that I could have a uh, a visual of basically what's going on across the across the nation. So in the article, they talk about homelessness, addiction and um and mental health so i just wanted to find like what states slash cities have like the top 10 in these issues um some notable ones for homelessness california has by far the largest homeless population and also i had gotten these numbers from the united states uh intra intra agency council on homelessness and these numbers are they state as of 2019 uh, these are estimated numbers of 2019 given on any day in, in 2019. So maybe these numbers change, you know, now it's 2020, but these numbers are still relatively fresh and they should still be representative of what's happening. So in California, they have 151,000 people that are homeless. So this, is, this includes adults, children, whatever. New York, 92,000. And then after that is a huge drop off. Florida at 28,000. Uh, Texas at 26. A couple other ones in this top 10 list are Washington, Massachusetts, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Ohio. And then I began to look at uh, addiction. And I found this one a little bit hard because there are so many illicit drugs out there. Um, it's sort of hard to kind of like just say how many people in this state are addicted to drugs. I mean, there were some things that were out there, but I found this to, just to be a um, a little bit of a better metric. Uh, so here I'm looking uh, from the National Institute of Health, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, that section. 
2018 opioid-involved overdose death rates per 100,000 people. These numbers are sort of, I'm not really going to go through the numbers, but the, uh, the states that are in the top 10 are West Virginia, Maryland, New Hampshire, Ohio, Massachusetts, Connecticut, uh, Washington, D.C., Rhode Island, Kentucky, Maine, and I also wrote down Florida at 21 and New York at 23. I thought it was important to put those two in, even though they're not top 10, they still are in that top half of states that have some sort of an opioid, uh, an opioid problem. Now I'm going to look at mental health. Uh, I got these stats from Mental Health America, uh, and this is this overall rankings of mental health. So for them, number one is like the best. They have the most access to care. They have the most insured people. People are on treatment, so on and so forth. They use a lot of different uh, metrics to kind of just, you know, round out all these rankings. I think there was like 13 to 17 different metrics that they use, and they just kind of throw into some kind of algorithm, some kind of equation to kind of spit out a number at them. Uh, so these things include the prevalence of mental disease, the access to care, other factors such as uh, suicidal ideations, um, adult and youth uh, substance uh, dis use disorders in the past year, um, those who are uninsured, uh, children with private insurance that did not cover mental or emotional problems, and so much more. Uh, so in this bottom... It took a little bit more than 10 in this scenario, uh, but the bottom states are Nevada, Oregon, Idaho, Utah, Wyoming, Alaska, Washington, South Carolina, Montana, Kansas, Oklahoma, Alabama, uh, Tennessee, Texas. I hope that we're starting to see a little bit of a pattern here. Not every single state, but a l not a lot, but there are certain states that are appearing more times than not in that top 10 or in that top 20 with these issues. And mental health is one of those things that gets really, really screwed up when we're talking about police shootings and police brutality. Um, just, you know, a couple of names just to throw out there. Uh, Steven Taylor, uh, 33 years old uh, in California. He was in Walmart. Cops showed up. He had a baseball bat. He is, he is schizophrenic. He had bipolar depression. Uh, cops shot him in Walmart. Saheed Vassell, uh, 34 years old, from Brooklyn. Uh, just to give a little bit of context, uh, this man was very well known in his community. He was not a stranger to the police. He's had mul uh, a couple run-ins with the police. Um, he was the man that would usually be out in the street. He would be asking people for money, uh, you know, outside the grocery store and things like that. But everyone knew him as someone that was friendly and non-combative. Uh, He's having a mental health crisis. He gets called, uh, the, the police get called over and they see him holding something in his hand. Um, the, the call was because people had thought he had a gun in his hand. Um, he did not have a gun in his hand. He had a silver pipe that was found out to be a welding torch after the fact. Uh, Sahid Vassell had bipolar disorder. And the last name that I'll bring up is Charlena Lyles, 30 years old from Seattle, uh, she, uh, you know, lived in a house with multiple people, a lot of them formerly homeless. Uh, she's calling for, she's calling the police for, um, to respond to a burglary that has happened either in her house or nearby her house. When police arrive, they see that she's in mental health crisis. She's hysterical. She's also holding a kitchen knife. Uh, she is pregnant, has four children. 
um, one of them with Down syndrome. And with her having that knife, uh, she did lunge at the police and they shot her. Uh, they shot her dead. So that gives a little bit of context for mental health in America, how police handle people with mental health, um, the lack of the de-escalation in those kinds of situations. And so now that I looked at mental health, I looked at uh, addiction, and I looked at homelessness, seeing that there are a couple of states that at least land in you know two, some of them may even land up in three of these lists, I ended up looking at how much do these states spend uh, for for police, you know what what's their budget for policing? So I went to Urban Institute and I looked at state and local expenditures per capita, direct general expenditures for the fiscal year of 2017. Uh, so we're looking at Washington D.C. that is in in the front by a, a mile with $910 per capita, New York at $529 per capita. Alaska at 493, California at 487, Maryland at 443, Nevada at 427, Illinois 413, New Jersey 401, Delaware 396, Wyoming 387, Massachusetts 377. And understand that the US average um, is 354. So, like I said before, some of these states are in the top 10 list more than once. Um, so, and then you also look at the amount of money that they're spending on police per capita. Uh, decreasing funding per capita and reallocating those funds to other social services to help homelessness, addiction, and mental health would just make everything better. I'll talk about it a little bit later. Um, so with – this is another point. Uh, so with the the increasing calls um, for just about everything, you know, cops, they, you know, people aren't – People call cops for obviously, you know, crimes and things like that. But people also call cops for all sorts of small, you know, small tedious things. Uh, they call for potholes. They call because their cat is stuck in the tree. They're, they call for, you know, noise complaints. They call for all sorts of just like different things that don't necessarily need police to be, you know, to solve them. So with that increase in in calls for just about everything there's also an overwhelming amount of documentation that needs to be done um, these are online forms these are written forms uh both uh so in order to make the police more efficient um well to backtrack this a little bit it's all it could be said that with all this plus their job with their lives on the line and everything that this can lead to burnout being overworked stressed all sorts of different things. So it can be said that to make them more efficient is to and to increase their likelihood of solving violent crimes and things of that nature is to make uh, the documentation and all the menial tasks, uh, uh, you know, they should be uh, that they should not be responsible for it, and that uh, some other agency that is you know not biased for the police to do the documentation. Uh, that was also something that was said in that Brookings uh, article. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how that would look like, um, but it, it is very clear that there are mistakes that happen in documentation. Uh, for example, one of the gross mistakes uh, happens in the blank report for uh, the killing of Breonna Taylor, uh, where in her injury section, it was listed as none. That's, that's a real thing. You could look it up. 
there there are more deficiencies in the in the police uh, in the police force as well. Um, we think of police as you know these people that are here to serve and protect. They are here to uh, you know mitigate crime. They are here to solve crimes, but they're not that great at it. And that's not just me just saying they're not that great because I've never called or whatever. But some stats, and these come from the FBI uh, uh, database. These are these are percentages for for uh, violent crimes that go unsolved, go uncleared. Roughly about forty percent of murders go uncleared. About two thirds, no, exactly two thirds of rape cases go uncleared. Seventy percent of robberies go uncleared, and approximately fifty percent of aggravated assaults. The people that are supposed to be in charge of, you know, solving these violent crimes and, uh, you know, taking initiative to make the community safe. When you look at percentages like that, it's kind of hard to uh, to kind of look at them the same way. Um, when they try, when you think of them as these people that are going to solve violent crimes, but there are, in most of these, half or more than half of those crimes aren't solved. And another point, so we look at, uh, this is going to be one that's going to be looking at uh, New York Police Department. So we're looking at police stops relative to charges. So New York are, you know, this this is no longer, but they did have that stop and frisk program. Um, it made them super inefficient and as a whole, it can be seen as a, just a, a total waste. Um, so well over 90% of the people that were stopped by the police um, they weren't committing any kind of crimes at the time, and they didn't have any kind of contraband or weapons at the time, which was the you know the main point of stop and frisk was to find illicit drugs, find unregistered weapons, and things like that. Um, and this overwhelmingly um, affected Black and Latinos, and half the time they were met by physical force. Um, and this quote I pulled um, from that Brookings uh, article was. You know, I thought it was really, really nice when he started talking about this whole stop and frisk thing, and then they brought this up. So it says, interestingly, police were successful at identifying criminality for whites versus blacks. This is because officers use suspicious behavior when interacting with whites and skin tone as the metric of suspicion when when interacting with black people. So I'm not going to stand here and say that stop and frisk was aimed at black people. But I'm going to say the stop and frisk was aimed at black people. So, they also end their article by saying that pumping more money into the police does not decrease crime. So we know that most of their interactions are nonviolent. We know that their skill set doesn't really match the interactions that they have. They're not that great at solving uh, crimes. A lot of times we put them into programs that end up wasting our tax dollars and waste their time because they're not actually finding anything. Um, so we understand that pumping more money into the police does not decrease crime, but what does, and there's studies that have been done on this is education equity and infrastructure, uh, work infrastructure. Those things do decrease crime. Now, I think everyone does know, but I'm just going to, uh, just quickly go over it. There's a difference between equality and equity. When we're talking about equality, equality means that, all right, um, there are three people that are trying to look over 
a fence to see the baseball game because they can't afford to get tickets. Uh, the fence is six feet tall, let's say. And now I give all of these people a step stool that's two feet tall. The first kid is five feet tall. The second kid is four feet tall. And the next kid is three feet tall. So I give them all a step stool that's two feet. So the first kid, he can, he can see right over that. The second kid, he barely sees over it. Maybe his eyes just at just at the very top of the fence. But then the third kid, he can't see, he can't see at all. Even if he were to jump, he can't see. So that's equality. Everyone gets the same thing. But equity is a thing where everyone gets something dependent upon your situation. So everyone's going to be brought up to the same level, but the means as to how people get there is going to be a little bit different. So that first kid he might not get the two-foot step stool. He might get the one-foot step stool. So he gets one foot. The next kid who's four feet, he gets a two-foot step stool. And the next kid who's only three feet, he gets a three-foot step stool. So they all get different. They all, they're all going to get different step stools, different amount of help. But it brings them up to the same level where everyone is on an equal playing field. So now... When we take that idea and now we apply that to education, areas that, that already get good amounts of education don't need a boost. The places that do need boosts in education, that do need more help, that do need more funding, are going to be our schools and school districts that have that, you know, teach our lower SES populations. If I had to point out a couple here on Long Island, we already all know them. Brentwood, Wyandanch, CI, um, West Hempstead, all, all those all those uh, towns that clearly have, you know, increased populations of minorities, increased populations of black people, low SES, not a lot of uh, funding for those schools. So if we increase uh, education equity and we increase work infrastructure, when we say work infrastructure, we need people to be employed. We need people to be working. If people are educated and if people are working, these people don't commit crimes. Okay, excuse me. Not that these people don't commit crimes, but they are astronomically not as likely to commit crimes. Astronomically. I'll post actually both of the articles that I, that I looked at uh, for this. Um, they are actually in that Brookings, uh, Brookings article. I'll throw that and I'll throw the two studies that I kind of peeked at a little bit. And super, super interesting. Super, super interesting. So basically all we want to do is move funds from one thing to the other. Take it from the police, put it towards education. Take it from the police, put it into work infrastructure. Take it from the police, put it into mental health. Put it into substance abuse centers. Put it into affordable housing. And it, 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 it must be said that things like this are starting to happen. Uh, quick few examples are going to be um, LAPD. Although LAPD has been uh, not so great lately, they are reallocating $100 million from their police to uh, programs for minority communities. It's also seen in the Baltimore City Council where they plan to reallocate $22 million uh, for 2021 from the police to fund uh, recreational centers, trauma centers, and uh, to forgivable loans for black-owned businesses. So these things are happening, and it's not this crazy thought. 
You know, before we thought it was crazy to abolish the police, but that that's happened almost 10 years ago now. That happened eight years ago. It didn't work out. And we saw what that community did to make their make their state better, make their city better. We see how cops work and operate, what they're good at, what they're not great at. And not to say that we need to get cops get rid of cops altogether, but maybe if we kind of tweak their train uh, tweak their training a little bit and you know give them a little bit of supplemental help with all like the the menial tasks that they really not that they shouldn't have to worry about but there are things that they're getting wrong so it's either we need to correct them to get those things right or they need a little bit of help and there's no shame in asking for help so taking money away from the police and then putting it into other things like i said before uh mental health addiction homelessness education work infrastructure um putting into those things those things have been proven in studies to decrease crime and not pumping more money into the police. So if we already know that pumping money into the police doesn't work, but we know that pumping money into our social services and education and work infrastructure does, it should be very, very apparent that we just need to shift some of those, some of those funds from the police to those services. And also, I want to clarify that when we say defunding the police, we are not hacking away and slashing away at at their budget we understand that they need x amount of money to operate x amount of money for fees for equipment for training we understand that we're not trying to say okay you need to cut your budget in half and you just got to figure it out that's not what we're saying we want we do want them to have money we do want them to operate but we want accountability we want the injustices to stop and we don't want racist people being police officers so when I say that we don't want them to, you know, we're not trying to hack away at all of their money. We're just talking about, you know, easy, maybe like anywhere between like 2 and 5% of their budget. And then that money gets moved on over. I mean, I could crunch numbers another time and bring that and bring that to you. But I, if I say, you know, 2 to 5% from every police budget gets donated or reallocated, excuse me, to these uh, to these other things for mental health addiction, homelessness, education, and work infrastructure. Crime's going to go down. We're going to have so much less of, you know, police excessive, uh, excessive police, uh, you know, uh, physicality with interactions with people. It's, it's, uh, all right, so uh, I'll leave it off here. I'll leave it off here. Defunding the police does not and is not this hack and slash attack to leave the police with zero dollars. It's taking uh, it's taking money away in effort to demilitarize the police department, uh, stop wasting taxpayer dollars on programs such as stop and frisk. And yes, we do understand that that uh, at least in New York. Uh, has been made, well, it has been in general made unconstitutional. I understand that, but just programs like that that uh, that push that broken windows policing and uh, avoid broken windows policing and add uh, and add it to other social aspects of society that clearly need help or can help decrease crime in general. So that is my thoughts on defunding the police. That is what it is. Uh, I've told you what it's not. I've told you what abolition of police means told you what it's not i've gone through all sorts of different points uh for defunding the police and what it could actually look like and why it would work so that is going to be the end of the show everyone i hope that you enjoyed it uh it was a fun time for me uh 
once again, everyone, uh, give the uh, official Unwritten Podcast Twitter page a follow at Unwritten Pod. Uh, do continue to send me your submissions for hashtag tell your story where we're going to be uh, collecting two to five minute sound bites of people sharing their encounters with racism. I will definitely have that uh, up and ready for you when I come back from all my travels uh, with the military. I hope that everyone's having a great time and I'll catch you next time on the Unwritten Podcast.